Today on Podcast by the Bay, we speak with the author, Carrie McClellan, about his book, Silicon City, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley. We need to build a vocabulary, a new vocabulary about what we want our society to look like. And it's not, some of it, some of that is going to be found through policy and sort of through technocratic suggestions about how we tweak um, many of the sort of structures and organizations that are around us right now. We're talking society and the state of the San Francisco Bay Area. Though the Bay Area was an inspiring place, and though there was certainly sort of an economic miracle of a kind in the wake of the Great Recession happening in the Bay Area for those who, who got to touch a bit of the tech industry, for anybody who wasn't, it was just an unraveling and um, story. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com and also Highway Soul Productions. www.highwaysoul.com Dot com. And now, another podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And welcome to another rendition of Podcast by the Bay. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for downloading this episode, and we thank you for spreading the word to all your friends out there. And so today, we're going to continue and really talk about some of the issues that are happening here in the Bay Area. And Patrick and I, we're always looking for solutions and talking about the issues. And so today, we're actually going to feature an author here with a new book. It's called Silicon City. And it's San Francisco in the long shadow of the valley. And it's uh, the author's name is Carrie McClelland. And um, we're excited to have Carrie here on Podcast by the Bay. So welcome to the show, Carrie. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you guys for having me. I, I, it's an honor to be here and truly respect your work. So I'm excited about the conversation about that. Hi, Carrie. Welcome to Podcast by the Bay. And, you know, I guess my first question, I was on, on uh, doing a little background on you. Were you singing that true, true born Irishman? I thought that was very entertaining. <laughs> I think I think I did once. Yeah, I mean, that 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 that, that video, that video was good, Carrie. So um, that, that's not it, me. Uh, that, if I was, I was you. singing along with um, a guy named Ariba Azar, who's uh, very, very talented. A pop musician in Pakistan, and he's uh, he was a subject of a film I did in in when I was in Pakistan. I lived there for about three years. So, the story that predates my return to the Bay Area is that I I was a for ten years uh, documentary filmmaker and human rights advocate, and worked in several continents around the world, um, largely in conflict zones or sort of post conflict situations to build media infrastructure in places that needed it. So then I come back to the oh. Bay and see sort of the the uh state of the union the state of the bay as it were um when i return and that's a lot of what provoked uh writing this book 
Okay, I appreciate it. Just for our audience, Kerry McClellan is a writer, filmmaker, lawyer, and rights advocate. Uh, he's the author of The Silicon Valley, Long Shadow of the Valley, Historical Portrait of San Francisco. Uh, he's, a, he's a lawyer. Um, he uh, worked in, in the areas of cyber uh, security, international litigation, arbitration, appellate litigation. Um, for practice law, Kerry directed, produced documentary films. He's an advocate rights of international development organization. Kerry, um, I know you met your wife in San Francisco, and you moved back to Brooklyn. Am I? Am, can I assume you were born in Brooklyn? No. Uh, well, not one hundred percent. I um, I was born in Manhattan, and then actually my family re- relocated the Bay Area for several years. Um, so my parents are native Californians. Um, my grandparents are native Californians. Um, there's actually three generations of my family that sort of met their spouses in the Bay Area. My mother's grandparents, my grandparents, uh, my parents, and then uh, my wife and I. So there's wow. a sort of history of starting families in the Bay Area. Um, we then, then, then we left, and my, much of my childhood was also spent in New York. Um, then the rest of my career was international for, the lar- for a large part. And I came back to the Bay Area to go to law school after about a 10-year career of, of human rights work. Okay, where did you go to law school? I went to law school at Stanford. Oh, excellent, excellent. Now, now, was your son born in California since you wanted to carry on that tradition? So we relocated after law school. We, I, we were probably in the Bay Area for about four or five years. And then after law school, um, it was sort of my wife's turn for her career to lead. So she got a great opportunity back in New York that took us back here. My son was then you know, born here. Um, but, but we remain sort of bi-coastal. My wife grew up in Palo Alto. Much of my work was in sort of uh, the area of like privacy and spe- free speech, much of which related to quite important questions that we're dealing with with respect to tech companies right now. So my legal work brought me back to San Francisco significantly. And then we have family on both coasts, so we're sort of bouncing. Oh, okay. Now, is your wife an attorney too? Yeah, she's a, she's a much better uh, both credentialed and practicing attorney than I am. Uh, but she's in a slightly oh. different area where she works um, mostly with corporations on corporate questions, whereas I'm working more on the right side question of, of sort of free, free speech and privacy. You know, the big question behind, the big question behind all backgrounds of people is your mom and dad. What's your, what's your dad or mom do? So they have, they have a long story and, and it begins largely as being sort of the kids of working class Californians made very good. Um, my dad was a, uh, uh investment banker um, who worked for, for some part of the time in Silicon Valley and some part of the time in New York. And my mom is a theater producer in New York who's won probably, I, I think, 13 Tonys at this point. I may be undercounting. Um, well, you know, they're, they're deeply accomplished people um, who, who came out of, um, you know, my dad's dad was a contractor. Um, my, my mom's uh, Dad was a small business lawyer, and his and her mom worked at the Los Angeles Times. So it's, wow, this it's, is so it's so oh. their their story is about a sort of like rapid rise in America that the baby boomer generation sort of went through. Um, there's some other dynamics in their family which we can get into, but the the heart of I think what where it connects to this is we've been a very lucky family uh, as a result of these dynamics. You know, they've they've been able to sort of carve out a level of like security and stability for our family that's allowed, you know, my brother's an OBGYN practicing in New York. I'm a rights attorney 
and a writer and a documentary filmmaker. And those things are, are largely possible due to the fact that um, we've had some opportunities. The, the flip side of that is to come back to the place that my family started, you know, to come home to the Bay Area, to come back to where each of these generations of my family began and to see that story so um, perverted by um, what are in part global dynamics that the Bay Area can't really fault itself for being a part of and in part very local dynamics that I think have accelerated an amount of inequality um, that really shocks the conscience. So that's what sort of brought, and, and then you look at, the very specific dynamics of displacement, homelessness on the street, struggles around sort of working families. And then you get back to some of the very fundamental questions that have been just part of my career for about 20 years, where you look at some of these um, rights-based issues internationally and then to come home and see them in one of, not just in America, period, we know America has problems, but to see them in one of the strongest cities in America and one of the thriving regions of America, I think, um, is a story we didn't really know how to tell when I began doing the work on this book. You know, you know, I think so. Andre can kind of get to the um, asking the questions that you really portray in your book. Brandon, you with the San Francisco Chronicle said your book essential, a conflicted and complex portrait of the city starving for solutions. Andre, why don't you open open it up with some discussion questions? Yeah, sure. So. First of all, we definitely appreciate you taking the time here, Carrie. And I guess one of the things about the book I think you actually highlighted, and it's actually fascinating. You mentioned that you both have experiences, you know, your just your 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 life experiences is really on the New York and, and the Bay Area. And there's a lot of similarities. Is that correct? There's a lot of similarities. Everybody has said, you know, San Francisco is similar to New York compared to other cities like that. So I think that the fact that you have that experience really kind of um, ties it in and and then you kind of recognize something as far as there's something happening, change. And so one of the things is, this is I'm just going to read a quick paragraph from really some of the opening uh, you know, monologue you have here. And it really talks about the setting, what's happening here in the Bay Area. So, so you know, here it goes. So it's through, through its history, San Francisco has stood as something like the nation's western capital. But it has always been something of a funhouse mirror reflecting a strange yet sublime potential self-back to the rest of the nation. It bore witness to the gold rush, the transcontinental railroad, Japanese internment, the beat poets, the free speech movement, the AIDS crisis, and modern LBGTQ politics, and the birth of the semiconductor and the motherboard. It was the city of refugees who turned camps into homes, not just the early settlers, but ways of Asian immigrants, families escaping the civil wars in Latin America. It was one of the great centers of America's black middle class, born after World War II, as good jobs and free education spelled opportunity for many who saw little in the same in the South. For the past 50 years, San Francisco was the place where community was created, not broken. So that kind of is the part of the intro really sets the kind of paints the picture of, you, you know, the short dynamics of, you know, the historical significance of what San Francisco represents. And there's other things, too, like the hippie movement and things like that. But it's 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 definitely what I think the more the traditional inline San Francisco has been and both Patrick and I, I mean, I grew up, I lived in San Francisco, I, you know, 40 years, uh, you know, being in the Bay Area, being in San Francisco. So we recognize that. And I think everybody who has been here and including you because you lived here, we all recognize that there's just been a significant, significant change 
significant change. And your book really goes into reaching out and talking to the people that are experiencing this at the front lines. And the reason why I think this is so fascinating that you've done this, the reason why is because both Patrick and I are all about solving problems. We love to talk solutions. We love to talk solving problems. And my background in quality work, one of the first fundamental things, and you actually describe this in your intro, is that in order to solve problems, you actually go, go need to go down and do the research. And I think that the, yeah, right. and the issue is, is that I think a lot of the policies, a lot of the things that people are coming up with for solutions, they actually haven't done the research. The research is not there to the same degree where here in this book, you laid it out by actually going to talk to over 50 people about their firsthand experiences and what's really happening on the front lines and at the ground level. So I think you really bring that to the point. So I, I guess my first question is, you know, what, what led you into this discovery where you really felt you had to do this book? So look, I, I mean, let's take it back to the beginning of your question in general, which sort of talks about, um, you know, the New York and San Francisco is sort of opposite poles of, of a similar story in America. I mean, New York has, has had Ellis Island for a long time um, as part of its uh, mythology. And I think there's a, a way in which New York represents um, much of America's uh outward-facing, international-facing story of opportunities. So people come here from somewhere else, often start in America, uh, start their American story in New York. San Francisco, to me, has always been the sort of end of an American story to a degree, that it was a place for people to come through to when other parts of America didn't work for them. And um, some of that paragraph is identifying, I think, you know, the, the many different phases, particularly post-World War II, where you just had layers and layers of internal um, migration inside America, people coming to San Francisco. You had um, racial and ethnic um, diversity arriving to the city. You had international migration to the city, and you had a sort of cultural migration and change in the city. Um, and this is sort of written across the Bay Area, too, because I think, you know, we like to talk about San Francisco as sort of... Um, a city into itself, but it's very much part of a regional dynamic. So, so many of these stories are happening in Oakland, San Jose, South Bay, um, Richmond, and elsewhere. But I, I also myself then went through something like that. I arrived into the Bay Area at a time very personally to myself that I needed to be reorienting my career and reorienting my personal self to becoming somebody who could really live domestically in the U.S. and be useful to U.S. Uh, American issues. I had been severely injured um, just by an accident um, doing some work overseas and um, wasn't going to be able to just run around holding a camera anymore. Needed a sort of uh, set of skills that were more sit at a desk and be a good boy oriented. And law school was part of that, shifting my human rights work into um, rights-based advocacy legally. Um, and then found myself really genuinely inspired by so much of what I saw in the Bay Area. Um, so many of the communities that I plugged into through my own family's history and my wife's, um, so much of what we found in, in terms of neighbors, many of whom were sort of longstanding Cali Californians and San Franciscans at that time still. Um, uh, my wife's family, it should be said, are, are two journalists, and so they have a, a very inspiring story about uh, what brought them. They have the opposite story to my family. They, they were born and raised in New York and then moved to 
San Francisco where their careers really took off. Yeah, Carrie, you, you, you truly sound like uh, you truly sound like a renaissance man and uh, a man of creati- creativity. What got you to the point? I think what I want to kind of get to the crux of let, let me let me turn the corner to, to the book, which is, I think, what you're asking is that's the upside of coming to the Bay Area, you know, for many, many people and many, many generations. And it's not without conflict. Um, at times, they're, they're, the story for any sort of community that's really dipped its roots into the Bay Area is often frictive, but, but many of them have been able to be there for decades um, and, and find a different story. My, what I also then see, and what I also saw both in Stanford was an interesting vantage for this, was um, though, though the Bay Area was an inspiring place and though there was certainly sort of an economic miracle of a kind in the wake of the Great Recession happening, in the Bay Area for those who, who got to touch a bit of the tech industry. For anybody who wasn't, it was just an unraveling an unra- um, story. And um, as many people as I met who inspired me, many of those people were leaving, either returning to the Midwest or the East, you know, shifting to the East Bay or further afield or up to Seattle or Portland. Many of those people then have had to sort of like relocate as those markets overheated. Um, uh, there were... Uh, it was very hard to feel like um, th- that you could live in San Francisco and just not see on the streets uh, a genuine human rights crisis. So the homelessness situation, which, you know, there have been new numbers on that even this week in terms of um, San Francisco adding to its homeless population over just the last uh, year and a half to two years. Um all of that, I think, struck me as uh, a sort of like dystopian situation that needed that that we were beginning to talk about in about 2011, 2012, when I first arrived. You could begin to start talking, having that conversation, but we were still, you know, three or four years post Great Recession, and really we're trying to figure out how long lasting these dynamics were. And as I started to to as I became more of a citizen of the Bay Area. Those dynamics just heat up, heated up to the extent to which you saw, um, I think, during the Day of the Dead Parade one year in the mission, the RIP mission floats walking by. Um, and then Stanford, being at the law school at Stanford, you sort of had this problem of there being a lot of well-intentioned people, lots of young people, lots of even experts within the law school in housing law, in education law, um, labor law in any of the sort of areas that would be relevant to addressing some of the problems that were going on. Um, but none of whom could sort of connect the dots across their discipline. There were very siloed conversations about specific issues, but it was very hard for people even at Stanford to sort of get to 30,000 feet and see how just interconnected all these problems were. I mean, now it's not hard for us to sort of um, map this a little bit better, but, um, one of the reasons the book takes the shape it does is in the person in the form of so many first person stories is I think it's important for us to recognize that the problems at work show up at home, the problems at home show up in children, problems in children wind up at schools and in the streets in our criminal justice system, and the problems of homelessness wind up in our hospitals and any number of other places. So we we just can't view ourselves as being so um, cornered away from each other and so separated. Um, uh, and a lot of the effort of the book is to sort of open up personal stories to demonstrate just how much we really are affecting each other's lives. 
Well, um, it, hopefully that begins to answer, I think, some of what. Um, yeah, I, I actually think it does, Carrie, and I think that's very profound how we recognize that there are, are these silos that are happening across the Bay Area, and we are looking at things in individual fashions, and we haven't been able to connect things from a regional scale, from a state scale. And I think you even bring it up that this is happening not only in California, but this is happening in pretty much every city. This is a national issue. So here's the question when you read the book. I mean, you read the, uh, you start reading this book, and you're getting perspectives from people in the Uber, right, the Uber drivers, the, the Google tech executives, you know. Um, and it's fascinating because you hear all their perspectives, and they all have an angle. I, I read one. It was a guy here. Um, let me get the – his name is Richard Walker. And he basically says his last thing, he says – we are destroying the basis of our prosperity. We are eating our children. So that is a really, it, it really asks the question, have we lost our way as a society? Yes. I mean, yes, we have. <laughs> to, to, to answer personally, <laughs> I think we all know we have. I mean, um, the, the, the hardest thing, I think, for the tech industry to recognize of late is not just the sort of discrete reckoning around the 2016 election and um, uh, Facebook and Twitter's role in um, propagating a certain amount of disinformation, some of it Russian, some of it um, our own, frankly. Um, but it's also this sort of like wider sense that the, the benighted uh, feeling that um, the tech industry got to have around um, finding solutions, um, building a better world, and being paid handsomely for it is that that sort of mythology is falling apart as we realize that much of what they succeed at isn't targeted at sort of the major problems of the country. Um, much of it's um, directed at uh, finding sort of niche gaps in marketplaces and exploiting um, either uh, sort of unaddressed market opportunities or really more often regulatory arbitrage, sort of finding gaps in the regulatory system and arguing that they're not beholden to the sort of burdens that other businesses have to do to compete with them. That we can get well, how, uh, that because yeah, I think yeah. it's really important to talk about. But I think some of what the book is trying to do is give us, get us out of our silos, give us a very like lived experience of people who are very different from us. So there are people who range from major tech executives to people who were sort of at the beginning of the founding of any number of cultural movements, whether it's uh, the LGBTQ rights movement or uh, the sort of 60s and 70s counterculture, or any of these other sort of um, movements that call upon the, the, some of the sort of rights-based history of the region. And then walk through it. a number of people who are like in the center of some Google bus protesters. There's the Uber driver. There's some people who represent the tech side of those those controversies as well. And then I think more profoundly, deep into schools, deep into the criminal justice system, deep into homes, deep into families that are really trying to wrestle with some of these issues. And then the back end of the yeah. book, I agree with you, is sort of semi-articulate about solutions. But to do part of the goal here, and I know I, I, I'm trying to get at what I think you're looking for right now is we need to build a vocabulary, a new vocabulary about what we want our society to look like. And it's not, some of it, some of that is going to be found through policy and sort of through technocratic suggestions about how we tweak um, many of the sort of structures and organizations that are around us right now. 
Kerry, can I, inter- can I interject in a moment? Because I think you, you I, I, pre- I appreciate your rim. You know, you're essentially kind of going the same direction, Andre and I like to talk. Let's talk about Facebook, because Facebook is the communication facility, whether it's security or lack of security or lack of privacy or lack of blogging or lack of bullying. How are we going to change that vernacular and how should government play a role with Facebook? Because uh, Facebook obviously is getting attacked, as you know, from the last election with the Russian trolls and stuff like that. How do we do that? Your background is in cybersecurity, uh, in law, um, and it sounds like deep down in, you've got a feeling on how we can do that. How do we do that? How do we approach it to, to make it better? Yeah, I think there are three things we need to sort of recognize. One of which is, um, I think at the deepest level, we have to recognize that Facebook's been making an argument about what community is. Um, what a modern community is, and it's not local anymore. Um, their argument is actually not not true. It's about connecting a world, but it's not about connecting you to people who live near you or addressing problems that are local and around you. And so to the extent to which we think those things are important, we have to recognize that Facebook just isn't our ally in that sense. They're, they're making an argument about sort of digitizing and in some sense, abstracting your community um, to the denigration of much of what's local and around us. So we only have so much time and attention in a day, and if much of your attention is being spent to sort of like niche interest groups that live online and not to the neighbors um, and those close to you, then I think that that is a profound shift. So we need to first recognize that that argument is being made and it's distracting us from a lot of what we need to do close to home. The second thing, and I think this this gets to deeply some of the regulatory questions that you're asking about. Um, from a pure media perspective, um, we uh, we need to stop imagining that the that freedom of speech extends to algorithmic platforms like this in quite the way that we um, thought we could treat it in the sort of analog universe. The, rea- the reality is, like, I agree with you. Everybody should be able to get, I agree with most people that say that we should be able to get online and say whatever we need to say. But then there's a layer of an algorithm that pushes that material out um, with a significant bias towards, um, I, no matter what's in it, there's a bias that the algorithm um, is endorsing. Now, right now, we know that Do algorithm think- is also pushing sort of extremist news to many places, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's Facebook or any number of places, that algorithm itself has no free speech protection. And I think algorithmic news uh, transmission is a very, very uh, dangerous uh, tool to be giving the same First Amendment credibility. Do you think Facebook can achieve it? Do you think Facebook is going to achieve that? And Mark Zuckerberg has got a goal to do that. Do you think that Facebook? No, can I mean that? no, and I don't. Think, and that's the third element of this, I think, which is, which is, I don't think we should be expecting Mark Zuckerberg, whatever sort of Supreme Court counsel he puts together, anybody on his board, to necessarily um, be able to do this on their own. Nor should they, frankly, nor should they have to, nor should they want to. Um, one of the one of the things that I think is so dark about our current time is, you know, Mark. I, I was having a conversation recently where somebody said, you would be insane to take Mark Zuckerberg at his word that um, he wants to turn Facebook into a sort of privacy defensive um, platform. Now, I I actually think there's some good faith there in what Mark's trying to say and what he's trying to do, but 
the reality is I think that person's right that like if you're a sane human being, you have to treat your conduct on Facebook as if your privacy is not being truly guarded by the corporation because it's its interest is in growing and making money and sort of leveraging your data for its own growth. And it's not necessarily in your privacy. And But that sickness, the fact that we have to behave so cynically towards a corporation is insane. Um, and we have to build a regulatory infrastructure that lets us engage, that gives us the safety and assurance that there's enforcement of, of rules across the board and that, that we're being protected. Then we can listen to Mark and trust him again, you know, because there's other people in the mix. There's a government intervening to give some sense of equal footing between users and the platforms themselves. And I think that goes, you know, it, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't want it any other way for healthcare. We wouldn't want it any way for agriculture. We want to be able to say our healthcare companies are, aren't making us sick and are making us well, that our food isn't poisoning us. Um, we have an FDA for those reasons. Um, and you know, lots to be said about the fact that those that that entity itself has been co-opted by lobbyists and isn't doing its work. But that's a di there's a different argument. That's a different argument about lobbyists. That's not the argument against enforcement itself or regulation. Yeah. So tying this to kind of our current Bay Area, like you brought up Facebook, and actually one of the things happening here, and Patrick might have some background, but Facebook they're just opening up a new campus right here in Burlingame. Uh, right on the shore shoreline, and they bought a huge giant building. And I and I remember, I think it was one of your interviews I had listened to where we had talked about the Amazon example in New York and about how the people actually uprose and decided, hey, wait a minute, is this the best thing for our society? Do you feel that people are going to start doing that here in the Bay Area for like this thing on Facebook? Yeah, I I mean, there's already some organizing around Google's campus in San Jose. Um, and I know um, Facebook's campus in Burlingame, and uh, I can't remember who's coming into the dog patch, but um, and the Bayview. But there's um, there's more to come. I I hope there's more organization in the Bay Area. But let me tell you what what New York has that the Bay Area doesn't. The New York is five. New York is a city comprised of five different counties. So Manhattan is its, its own county. Brooklyn's its own. Queens, Bronx. Uh, Staten Island, and because those five counties, yes, they get they they do some things independently, but they do very few things um, fully independently. They have there's one city council, um, uh, and and there's one place you vote when you vote when you vote for mayor of New York, you're voting for mayor of the whole city. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is um, that when um, Amazon wanted to come into Queens, basically the Long Island city. It didn't just have to overcome whatever marginal local resistance was in that neighborhood, nor did Queens have to deal on its own with the fact that it had some budgetary, that it, it vastly needs um, money compared to, for were it an independent budget, it would need the money compared to Manhattan, Brooklyn, um, let's say. It gets to participate in the citywide budget of Manhattan. And so you had you had representatives from Chelsea, you had representatives from Brooklyn, you had representatives from all over the city asking Amazon the questions that needed to be asked around community investment, about community outreach, around investment in schools, around the impact on housing, around the impact on transit, all of which I think everybody frankly expected Amazon to be able to have answers to. And it had none. I mean, the city, the, the hearing at city council, New York 
when Amazon showed up, Amazon, Amazon was answerless on almost all those questions. And that's, I think, what turned the public, particularly turned the public voice in New York against Amazon. There was some ambivalence about it, and there was lots of machinations behind the scenes. There's always will be that in cities where a significant amount of corporate interests and developer interests and any number of other things are part of what sort of politicians listen to most closely. But the, ba the barrier is hamstrung in this respect because it, it's nine to 12 counties, depending on how you count it, all of which are independent, each of which um, has their own uh, county governments and city governments with them. None of which carry in uh, regionally, and not, yeah. none of which are able to coordinate even the basics of transportation, water, um, together. So when we're dealing with problems that are at the scale of a regional housing problem, a regional homelessness problem, regional healthcare problems, regional school issues, it's very challenging for the Bay Area to sort of tackle those, those things at the scale that they're really Carrie, on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, I want to ask one more question, and more question I think it could kind of wrap, wrap up what we're doing. What we've been talking about, we've been talking about regulatory agencies, we've been talking about private industries, we've been talking about cities, counties. Um, we, we haven't brought international in because we don't have the time in this episode. How can they work better together? Because the whole solution to whether it's housing whether it's transportation or whether it's the Uber driver or whether it's a lack of housing or whether it's a homeless issue, we need to somehow coordinate that. And you just brought it in the last few um, uh, words that you said about how government communicates differently than business and business communicates different, like a city and a county. How can we have that better channel of communication so that we can have a better society? You know, I think... There's a, there's a lot layered into that question. Some of it's about communication, and some of it's about cooperation. And and there's some relationship between those two things. But but there's also a little bit of a difference. I think it's very. I think we're past the point of being of San Francisco on its own being able to solve um, its housing issues, its homelessness issues, its transportation issues. Um, and at schools issues. And there really needs to be a um, region-wide convening around these questions. And I, and frankly, the Bay Area, until the Bay Area is ready for some level of regional governance, um, the state government is really the only actor that can come in and at scale address some of these issues. Happily, there's also um, some discussion around housing um, and homelessness happening at the, in, within the Democratic Party right now. So there's also the potential for some federal assistance. But um, the, the getting to a place of co genuine communication and cooperation is then a deeper question, though. You know, there's so much, there's such a perception today. One of the things that I think was most profound in the book is it, the two things that struck me most were, one, Everybody sees the problem, whether they're a tech executive, whether they're, you know, um, middle management at a tech company, whether they're an innovator running their own company, or whether they're um, one of the, like, you know, 80% working class people in the city who all have, like, diverse and different stories. All of them see the problem. All of them are trying their best to orient themselves to some kind of solution. But on the flip side of that, there's a tremendous feeling of pressure and scarcity that is um, breaking apart people's ability to invest civically around them and to take the time to really address on community issues. Um, until some amount of breath can be given to the every life in the Bay Area, 
um, even some of the lives that are thriving feel like they're they're you know they're they're treading water, struggling to tread water right now. I don't think we're going to be able to get to a place where there's genuine cooperation. Okay, Carrie, on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, I want to want to uh, thank you very much for taking your time and for your dedication to the community and for writing your book and for for uh, being doing your documentaries and uh, spreading the word of communication. Um, so. With that, I'm signing off. I just want to say thanks again, Kerry, for you know for, for, for doing this book. I think it really provides that fundamental basis of what people were looking for, what everybody's feeling here in the Bay Area. I mean, everybody's feeling, like you said, people are recognizing the things. People are recognizing it. And now it's really about solving. I think you, you kind of highlighted what needs to happen, I think, a, a nice strategy. And I think there's a lot of people with uh, reaction. Everybody's reacting, but people are not coming together looking at the over scale of the issue. And I think that's what you start to do here is to really bring that here. So we definitely appreciate you taking the time, speaking with us here at Podcast by the Bay, and really giving the audience some insight. And if you guys haven't checked out the book, please go ahead and check out. It's called Silicon City, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley. You can get it on Amazon or any bookstore. It's a really great read, and it's really profound. Um, and you're hearing the stories from the people at the front line. So with that, signing off, we just want to say thank you again, Carrie. We appreciate you being here uh, on Podcast by the Bay. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, guys. It was such a pleasure. I mean, there's there's deep wisdom from all of us who live in the community. And thank you guys for sharing yours as well. Um, hopefully the book is able to share some of uh, other people's points of view. I appreciate the platform for it. All the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Signing off. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And we'll catch you on the next time, a podcast by the way. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. You can contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs. www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com And also Highway Soul Productions. www.highwaysoul.com You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay is our handle, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast by the Bay. And remember, you can listen to any of our episodes anytime on any podcast site. Until next time, stay tuned. Stay tuned.